This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Each year, the Canadian Society for Internal Medicine annual meeting features the presentation of the top five papers in internal medicine. From the papers that had been discussed on the podcast between November 2016 and October 2017, we selected five that we felt were particularly influential and presented them as the top five papers this year. We specifically wish to thank the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine for their gracious invitation and generosity in allowing us to participate in such a meaningful way at this year's meeting. For those of you who attended, I'm sure you will agree that the meeting was a smashing success. And for those who didn't, we hope to see you there next year. Without further ado, I take you now to part one of the live recording of myself and Dr. Amol Verma delivering this year's Top 5 Papers talk at the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine's 2017 Annual General Meeting. So the Top 5 Papers uh, of 2017, although to be a bit more precise, it's actually of uh, since the last CSIM to this CSIM, which as any good Canadian internist knows that, that this is our new year. Uh, in Canada. So uh, our first topic is going to be about patent foramen ovale closure in stroke. The second is going to be about pulmonary embolism and syncope. Thirdly, we're going to talk about re-evaluating the diagnosis of asthma. Fourthly, BNP-guided treatment in heart failure. And finally, opioid prescribing in the emergency department. So without further ado, why don't we uh, dive right in. Uh, Adam, do you want to turn on this timer? I don't know. Oh, there's, he's not there. Maybe we'll... There is no Adam. Okay. We'll I will start our timer here, yeah. So that we don't go over. Or maybe, Gabe, you got it there? Okay. So topic one, is that a PFO sighting? Uh, patent foramen ovale closure or antiplatelet therapy for cryptogenic stroke. So there were actually three paired or tripleted publications uh, articles that came out in the same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year. We're going to focus on one of them and briefly touch on the others. So let's start with the case. So Kieran, here's the case. You admit a 47-year-old woman with a left MCA stroke. You do the full workup and you find no obvious etiology for the stroke. So no atrial fibrillation, no signs of hypercoagulability, no large vessel atherosclerotic disease. You did, however, on your transthoracic echo, find a patent foramen ovale. So my question to you is, should you refer this patient to cardiology for further investigation and management of the PFO? Well, I think the first question I would ask is, why did I do the echo? I really shouldn't have done that in the first place. But a year ago, I would have said, absolutely not, no referral. I have a feeling that you're going to tell me something different. What's the bottom line for this article? So the bottom line of this multinational randomized trial of PFO closure in younger patients who had non-lacunar and cryptogenic strokes demonstrated a significant reduction in recurrent clinical stroke. And the bottom line is that the number needed to treat for one, uh, to achieve one reduction in clinical stroke was 28 patients receiving a PFO closure. So that's a pretty profound uh, finding, possibly practice changing. Tell us a little bit more about the design of the study and how they conducted it. Yeah, so this was a multinational uh, randomized control trial called the REDUCE study, funded by the device manufacturers. It was open label, uh, so uh, the participants and the doctors looking after them were not blinded to the intervention. They enrolled 664 participants who were young. So this is, these are some of the key points here. So between 18 and 59 years old, the average age was 45. These participants, only 25% had hypertension. Only 4% had diabetes. So 
this is not the typical stroke population. They had to have a non-lacunar infarct, so it had to be a fairly large infarct, and they needed to be cryptogenic. So that meant that they did uh, workup for any large vessel atherosclerotic disease, so no carotid disease, no signs of cardiac thrombus, uh, no uh, hypercoagulable state, uh, and an ECG that showed no atrial fibrillation. Once they determined that it was cryptogenic stroke, uh, those patients all had a transesophageal echo, <clears throat> and the TEE had to show PFO with signs of a right-to-left shunt using a bubble study. And 80% of the participants in this study had a moderate-to-large right-to-left shunt. The intervention was PFO closure with a device plus antiplatelet therapy versus antiplatelet therapy alone. All right, well, I think I recognize this patient uh, that I've seen before. Tell me about what the, the study found. Yeah, it's kind of like your stroke in the young population, right? So the outcomes, they followed patients for about two to five years, and the main outcome was clinical stroke. And you can see here a pretty uh, striking reduction in uh, clinical stroke, 5.4% in the antiplatelet therapy-only group and 1.4% in the device closure group. If you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, the smaller part of the uh, uh, graph there, you can see that the group separated pretty early at around six months or so and stayed separated uh, over the duration of the follow-up. Interestingly, they had a second outcome, which was a composite of clinical stroke plus silent stroke. So all of these patients got an MRI at 24 months uh, after the intervention, and they looked to see how many had a silent stroke. So what was the burden of ischemia in the brain? And interestingly, there was no difference in silent strokes between the populations. So the main difference was really in clinical strokes. So this kind of, this surprised me, Amal. Uh, help me understand this, uh, this finding between the two, the clinical stroke and the silent stroke. Does it, does it speak to the underlying mechanism of the stroke here? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that when you think about PFO closure, the types of stroke you're preventing are really large embolic strokes, right? Uh, a systemic thrombus that comes up, shunts across the heart, and goes up to the brain. And so those strokes are much less likely to be silent and more likely to be uh, clinically uh, uh, identifiable. There's one potential study design possibility here that could have played in. So the, uh, remember, the patients and the doctors in this study were not blinded. And so the people in the platelet-only arm may have thought, I'm at higher risk of having a stroke. They may have been more vigilant for strokes. They may have referred uh, those patients for more neurological assessments and been seen more often. So, uh, so sort of a, a re uh, referral bias. Uh, as the authors refer to it. So that's a possibility, although I think that's uh, less likely because they had a clinical uh, events adjudication committee. So every outcome for the study was evaluated by blinded reviewers and said, yes, that was a stroke, uh, according to our criteria. So I think that that's less likely to be a real uh, weakness of the trial, but it's an unavoidable uh, limitation. We must acknowledge it's a limitation of this. Okay, so PFO closure is not a benign procedure. There is some risks inherent to it. What are the counterbalancing measures here in this study? Yeah, so the procedure, there were about 2.5% procedure-related uh, uh, adverse events. That what you might expect, bleeding, um, uh, sort of from the actual procedure itself. The device itself was 99% of the time implanted successfully, and 75% of the time it achieved full closure. So a pretty effective device. Um, about 1.5% of the time, there were some device-related complications. 
One interesting thing for the, us internists in the room that we care about, so the implantation of the device was associated with increased atrial fibrillation. So about 6% of these patients had atrial fibrillation related to the device implantation. Most of it was pretty transient, so when they reassessed patients about two months later, about 60% of them that no longer had atrial fibrillation. But it is a real complication of the procedure. So, well, this is not the first study to ever look at PFO closure in stroke. What does this trial add to our knowledge in the, in the greater context? Yeah, absolutely. So, as I uh, mentioned, there were two other papers published at the same time in the New England Journal. One was called the CLOSED trial. A very similar study had very similar findings. Um, and the other was called the RESPECT long-term outcomes. That was actually an older study, and they looked at five-year outcomes and found, again, a, a pretty significant reduction in, in clinical stroke at five years. It was about a 50% reduction in the hazard of stroke. So sort of similar. Interestingly, there were a bunch of older studies done around the same time of the initial RESPECT trial, which showed no difference between the two, uh, between the intervention. And so the, probably the major reason for this is careful patient selection. So we talked about it initially at the beginning of introducing this study, that this was all patients who were younger, um, who had a non-lacunar stroke. So some of the old studies included patients with lacunar stroke. So that's the major finding. So I think the, science, the main takeaway today is that the science has progressed to the point where we know who should have or who should be considered for potential PFO closure. And PFO closure is compelling in patients who are younger than 60, have a cryptogenic non-lacunar stroke, and who have a PFO with signs of right-to-left shunting. And so if we come back to our case, the answer is this patient should have a transesophageal echo to evaluate her PFO further and maybe consider closure. Okay, thanks for that, Amol. So let's move on to the study uh, number two of our top five. Uh, This is to PE or not to PE, not to be confused with the age-old question on call to P or not to P. Uh, But this looked at the prevalence of pulmonary embolism uh, in individuals who presented to hospital with their first episode of syncope. So, Amol, imagine you're on call one night uh, and a patient is admitted. uh, She's 76 years old. She's had her first episode of syncope. Uh, You've done a thorough history and you've ruled out your causes based on her historical uh, information. Your physical exam is generally unremarkable, normal ECG. Essentially, you come to the end of your consultation and you don't really have a clear, identifiable etiology for the cause of her syncopal episode. And the question I put to you is, should I work her up further for pulmonary emboli? I mean, I think the answer a year ago would have been I would definitely not have. Okay. So this is the PZIT study we're talking about. And the bottom line for this multi-center cross-sectional study of 560 Italian patients who are admitted for their first episode of syncope identified a 17% prevalence of pulmonary embolism in these individuals. Wow, that is uh, super striking, and we should, would absolutely be practice-changing if we believe it to be true. So tell me more about the study. So this is a prospective design. It was multi-center across Italy, several uh, academic and some community hospitals, um, and they had uh, blinded adjudication of the outcomes as to whether pulmonary embolism was present or not. Uh, there was 560 individuals. They were older in age. Mean age in this study was 76 years old. Um, and they presented with their first, not recurrent, but first episode of syncope. And importantly, it was not due to very obvious causes such as seizure, stroke, or head trauma. And then these individuals were stratified into two separate groups. So you were PE likely or PE unlikely. And that was based on a combination of a modified Wells score or your D-dimer results. So if you were put into the PE likely bin, your modified well score was greater than four, 
and your D-dimer cutoff was between 250 and 500 micrograms per mil, depending on the center and the acid that they were using. Ultimately, you were, you were sent for a CTPA, or if there was contraindications to that, a VQ scan. Great. So every patient had a structured investigation for PE, and every patient got a D-dimer test done as well as the well score. So uh, tell me a little bit more about how they enrolled the participants and what they found. So this is an important uh, flow chart to look at. Um, <laughs> Which it, probably no one can actually read the numbers. Yeah, so, be... so I'll just highlight the numbers for you if you can't see. Uh, so just over 2,500 individuals presented to the emergency department with syncope. Uh, now this is a really important point. Eight, just over 1,800 of those individuals were discharged without a structured uh, workup for pulmonary embolism. Um, and I think that introduces a really important point about potential selection bias, uh, especially between centers, if your culture for the threshold for admission for syncope is different. Um, and so therefore, sort of the generalizability of this study uh, uh, is something to keep in mind. Nevertheless, um, it, we end up with 560 individuals who are admitted to hospital for their very first episode of syncope, um, and ultimately those who went on uh, to, uh, to be found to have a pulmonary embolism there was 97 of them, which was a prevalence of 17%. Now, one of the secondary findings I found uh, interesting to point out was that in just under half of those individuals who were found to have pulmonary embolism, their initial diagnosis as the cause of their syncope was something other than pulmonary embolism, um, which really sort of makes you pause and think about the alternative causes uh, here. Yeah, I, this is really striking again. So if we believe this, uh, it would absolutely change my practice. One of the things you raised the interesting question about, are the patients in this trial the same as the patients I see who are admitted with syncope in my center? That to me is the single most important question about how we interpret this trial. So some colleagues and I tried to answer that question using data from Toronto. I think it's a perfect segue for a little <laughs> shameless self-promotion. Take it away. Self-promotion is never shameless. So, um, okay, here's the main thing we find. We, we looked at 1,300 patients who were admitted with syncope to four hospitals in Toronto. Um, and we looked, so what per, this was before the PISIT study. Um, and we found that about 10% of them get investigated for PE, which seems about normal, I think, to the clinicians in the audience. Um, the very striking finding here is that if you look at everyone who got a CT scan for PE among the syncope patients, in real-life practice, 15% of them had a positive finding. If you look in the PISIT study, everyone who got a CT scan for PE, 40% of them had a positive finding. Now, that's super counterintuitive, because in real life, we should only be scanning the patients who we thought had a higher risk of having a PE. And in PISIT, they scanned more people because they were screening everyone, right? So you'd expect at least the same percentage to have positive PE, but they, way more of them had a positive PE in PISIT than in our real-life cohort. So it just raises for me the important question of, are our patients in Canadian hospitals who are hospitalized with syncope really the same as those in this Italian study? And I'm, I'm not sure the answer is yes. Right. And that goes back to that original flow diagram where 1,800 of those individuals were discharged. Is there a different threshold for admission in yeah. Italy, say, versus Canada? We don't know the answer to that definitively. But I wanted to also point out something about the baseline characteristics of these individuals and all. So if you look at the highlighted section in red, and you look at the individuals who have pulmonary embolism confirmed, 40% of them had signs of deep vein thrombosis uh, on the initial presentation. Um, and so to me, it raises the question about whether you need to jump straight to a, a radiation-exposing investigation when you potentially could start with a lower extremity Doppler ultrasound to look for DVT, similar to what we do in our pregnant population, I would think. 
The counterbalancing point to that that I wanted the audience to, to hear about, though, is that a quarter of the individuals who had pulmonary embolism did not have signs or symptoms of PE, such that the absence of those symptoms or signs should not be enough in your mind to rule out the fact that they may not have a pulmonary embolism, and you may need to perform some sort of further investigation. I propose potentially a, a lower extremity ultrasound in this case. Yes, yeah, so I have to say, we put this as one of our top five papers, but I hate this study because it has just introduced an enormous amount of uncertainty into our practice because if we believe it, then we're scanning a bunch more people, right? Which is not a harmless thing. A lot of radiation, a lot of potential for you know, contrast-induced nephropathy, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not sure if it applies, but at the same time, everything you're telling me scares the heck out of me. Like 25% had no signs or symptoms of PE. Mm-hmm. This is a patient population which we often send home with reassurance, but maybe that's false reassurance. So what, how, how do you take away from this? What do you... Well, I think, as you highlighted right there, that syncope is challenging. I think all of us as physicians uh, somewhat dread that uh, referral and diagnosis. But I think that what I've learned from this, trial, from this study is that patients should receive some form of a very systematic clinical assessment. That should include a Wells score. Um, and depending on your practice, you can include certain specialized investigations uh, beyond that to work them up for pulmonary embolism. I think that, for me, is the important point. And you're specifically starting with a D-dimer, as they did in this study. Yeah, so my personal practice from this is to apply a Wells score to everybody and a D-dimer to everybody and use age-appropriate threshold cutoffs, uh, and, I, and I go from there. Yeah, and I have to say, my practice is to think about PE in everyone, Wells score in everyone, good physical exam in everyone, and a D-dimer in people who I'm more worried about, but not in every patient. Let's say. Sounds like an opportunity for a randomized trial to sort out this equipoise. So, Amol, uh, in our case of our 76-year-old woman who presents with uh, a first episode of syncope, should I work her up for pulmonary emboli? I think in my case, as I said, I absolutely should and will. Uh, in my practice, I include a D-dimer. In yours, not so much, but I think it's not clear as to the, the best way to move forward. Okay, let's move on. All right, so uh, question and answers, and I would implore this, uh, you guys to put it on the, on the podcast, and I guarantee you the uptake will be higher. All right, who's first over here? Go ahead, Amy. So just a question regarding the study on PFO closure. The case that you started out with was a patient who had a PFO demonstrated on a transthoracic echo. But in the study, my understanding is that everyone actually had a transesophageal echo. My concern is what if that initial patient had had a negative TTE, which is extremely common in patients with PFOs. Transthoracic echo is not great at picking them up. I, certainly, I do echo myself, and I certainly am not finding them in anything remotely similar to the actual rate in the normal population, let alone in stroke patients. So really for me the question is, should, how do we decide who with a negative transthoracic echo gets a transesophageal echo in the setting of a cryptogenic stroke? And that to me is a scarier question. It's a much more expensive resource. It's a, it's a um, procedure with some risk, and it's certainly not something that we want to be doing in everyone with cryptogenic stroke. Great. Okay, great question. So... Um, The prevalence of PFO on TEE in the population is around 25%. The prevalence of PFO on transthoracic echo in the population is around 5%. Okay, so transthoracic echo, as you say, is not very sensitive for PFO. Um, If we believe this study that PFO closure is something that should be considered in young patients with cryptogenic stroke who have no other explanation and it's a non-lacunar stroke, then all of those patients should have a transesophageal echo. I think that's what, if you believe the study, I think that's the implication of the study, 
Um, and uh, I would argue that probably they don't need a transthoracic echo, in fact, because you're going to go to a transesophageal echo. Yeah. I mean, you do with the transthoracic anyway to look for thrombus and other causes of stroke, but I, I think this is a really important thing because as, a, as an echo person, I've always sort of thought previously, well, you know, if I miss a PFO, what's the big deal if closure isn't going to make a difference? And I think that's been the reason for our previous diagnostic approach. But this, if this is practice changing, it could also be extremely resource intensive. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I also wonder, reasons. I mean, not knowing the specific numbers myself, but you know, th- these were moderate to large shunts that they saw. Uh, ultimately, they were referred for closure. So I don't know the rate of, like the sensitivity of a transthoracic echo in missing a large, uh, moderate to large shunt versus a, a small one. And maybe I don't know if you, if you have that information. Yeah, probably still not very sensitive. Um, I, so I think your point is really well taken. I think there's a few extra things we need to think about. So who are the patients that need a transesophageal echo? Um, and is it like a cost-effective strategy? Yeah. Uh, it's a really open and interesting question. Absolutely. So this is a question about the PE study. Now, the starting population uh, obviously is going to be very different from the population, say, in the Wells uh, yeah. study or, I mean, or you know, any other PE study. And so with a totally different presenting complaint, which you know, presumably would normally be something like hypoxia, shortness of breath, uh, pleuritic pain. So... Um, what was the uh, effect of these um, factors when when assessing for the the the, the uh, you know the risk in that like like is it worthwhile getting a, a blood gas and doing AA gradient right. or you know assessing for these other things which are not part of the well score yeah. but are um, usually presenting complaints for PE. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, an excellent point, that the Wells score is not validated in a cohort of, of patients specifically with syncope. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one side point I would make about a comparison between the Wells score and the D-dimer in this study, which maybe helps answer your question, that 99.1% of all patients who had a positive D-dimer also had a, had a PE in this study. Um, and so from one of the sort of subtler points we didn't have time to get into it that I learned was that the D-dimer, I mean, uh, risks of all the false positives that you see, but in this particular study, the D-dimer, use of the D-dimer was pronounced, and I think, and that's why I've applied it to all the patients that I see. Can I just clarify? You said 99.1% of the people who had a positive D-dimer had a PE. Do you mean that 99.1% of the people who had a positive D-dimer were the ones who got investigated for a PE? So of the... So the about no, the- no. So, the, the, so there's about 60% of individuals um, who didn't have a PE uh, who had uh, a positive, a positive D-dimer. D-dimer. So, so again, the limitations of the D-dimer, you know there's lots of reasons for false positives. Um, but uh, I think that there was some important points about it. Yeah, there. and I guess just to pick up on that, so the, the point about the well, so most of the people who went on to get investigations in this study, it was driven by the D-dimer more than the well score. Um, and the, the, I think your point is absolutely well taken. I don't think they presented data about all of the other investigations that might be helpful in this population short of the CT scan, and I think that would be really interesting to try to look at. Yeah, yeah but you know, specifically, I, I guess you know, I'm questioning... Um, was there data about uh, hypoxia, right. uh, pleuritic pain, or say AA gradient as a yeah, so predictor? Yeah, they, they, so they um, didn't present the specific data about um, uh, 
Uh, just let me look at the table two is where they have all those signs and symptoms. But no, they definitely don't have AA gradient. Yeah. Um, they do have uh, respiratory symptoms and, and uh, tachycardia, but no, no specifically about hypoxia. Um, so I think there is some important information you can glean from uh, that's not included in this, tri- in this study that could help you make your decision as well. Perfect setup for Wells 2 score coming from Canada. Go ahead. Uh, so thank you guys both for a great talk. The question I had was also about the PESIT trial. Did you guys consider the burden of PE in terms of the likelihood of actually causing the syncopal episode and maybe why in our clinical practice we're not seeing consequences down the road for some of these patients that we're not investigating? I think about 30% were segmental and subsegmental, of which there's controversy about you know, how to even treat these patients. Um, so that's something I noticed in the study when you're looking at 40% have PE, but 30% are segmental, subsegmental, and you know, 25% were asymptomatic. Does that correlate the asymptomatic ones with the smaller burden yeah. PEs? Yeah, that's a really excellent point. I, I don't know. So this is kind of gets at your, your underlying pathophysiological mechanism. Um, so the numbers were that 40% uh, of the pulmonary emboli were in the main pulmonary uh, artery. Uh, 7% were subsegmental. So that makes up about 50% that were sort of in between in segmental arteries. And I think one of the major questions that's been raised is, is a segmental artery PE large enough to cause syncope? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if anybody really does, at least to, that I've come across and asked about. Um, but I think it's a, you know, the question is really, are these incidental findings that you found because you went looking for them, or are they truly the underlying cause of the, of the syncope? Um, I don't know, Amal, if you have further thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I, what I knew is that if we see segmental PEs, we almost always anticoagulate them. Subsegmental, I think there's real debate. Segmental, we almost always anticoagulate. But we still don't. But that's when we see it in the setting of, you know, someone who we were testing it for. Symptomatic, so, so to speak. If, what, what should we do if you have a segmental PE in, you know, the screening population? So I think it's a really interesting question. I don't have a sophisticated answer. Chase down our thrombosis experts later in the yeah. day. Oh, we have a thrombosis expert just to our right. Do you know from the cancer population when we have asymptomatic cytopenia, so, so, um, so, so Vera just said if you couldn't hear from the cancer population, uh, when we incidentally pick up um, large uh, saddle large PEs, um, their, their risk of mortality is very, very high. Um, so that kind of incidentally found large pulmonary embolism is still clinically significant. But I don't know what it says about segmental subsidy. Yeah. Last question. Hi, I'm Ola and Kieran. Thanks for the excellent presentation. Uh, actually, I had two questions on two different studies. One is the PACIT study. Like, if, you, if a patient has a clear-cut known reason for a P, uh, like a syncope, would you still get... PE, like if you know there's a third degree AV block which is causing bradycardia and causing a syncope or a postural hypertension, would you do it in, if the D-dimer is positive or negative? So just to answer that question. I yeah, go right ahead. Those people would not have been included in this study, so I would not. Okay. Uh, second question is, in patients with the PFO, if a patient is having an indwelling venous catheter, which can actually give us a showers of emboli, and what I'm driving at as dialysis population or a patient with Hickman's catheter, which we don't even know whether those emboli go because those emboli usually land up in the lungs. Would that population be a suitable population for PFO closure? It's a really interesting question. I don't think they included dialysis patients in the study, um, but that's a, that's a fascinating question. Yeah. 
ask like a true nephrologist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, one more shameless plug, which is never shameless. Uh, I was on rounds two weeks ago. This is to all the staff in the room. I was on rounds two weeks ago pontificating about opiates overuse, and my house staff, including clinical clerks and R1s, told me about this trial. When I asked them, where, pray tell, did you find this information, they said, on the rounds table, silly, of course. <laughs> and so um, just like the Times, uh, the house staff are, are getting really good information. I've been listening to this podcast for years. It's very, very good. And if you don't want to look dumb in front of your house staff, listen to it. <laughs> I agree with Steve. This is probably the best top five papers I've heard in, uh, in a decade at CSIM. So let's uh, thank these fine gentlemen. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstable podcast. Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Mayer, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundtable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. 